you for the privilege of being gathered before you. Thank you for the privilege of bringing these gifts. Thank you that you, among us, both lead us in our worship and receive our worship, and you hear our prayers. And we ask you again that these gifts would be used so that the gospel of the glorious kingdom, which you have inaugurated, would be seen and heard to the ends of the earth for the praise of your great name. In your name we ask this. Amen. Please uh, look with me at Hebrews chapter 2. And while you're uh, turning there, let me just remind you what it is that we're doing. We're in the midst of a little four-week series just looking at a handful of things uh, that matter to us, uh, a handful of things that are important to us, some, some core convictions. And last week, we looked at the grace of God and the God of grace as one of those things that, that matters to us. And I suggested to you that the sort of the way to think about this little series last week, having looked at the grace of God, this week we'll look at the worth of God and the worship of God. Next week, we'll consider the Word of God. And the last week, we'll consider the mission of God. So this morning, we're going to think about worship. And as we read this passage together, as you follow along as I read, let me have you keep three questions in mind. What on earth is going on here, here and here? What on earth is going on? Who is here, who is here, and how did we get here? What's going on, who is here, and how did we get here? So let me read these verses, Hebrews 2, beginning at verse 10. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one origin. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Let's pray together. Thank you, Jesus, for your word, for the truth of it. Would you you now come uh, by your spirit, the spirit which you have poured out upon us, your church, Would you walk among us? Would you speak to us? Would you take your word, press it into our hearts, change us with your life-changing word, we pray in your name. Amen. Please be seated. 
a story. In the uh, mid-1970s and into the mid-1990s, late 1990s, the Florida Presbytery of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church, a, a sister denomination of ours, the Florida Presbytery of that denomination had a week-long gathering of high school and college students, and for some crazy reason, I was invited to speak at this camp. And was invited, which is even more crazy, was invited back several times and ended up speaking at this camp uh, six times, I think it was. And on the first night of the camp, which was a Sunday evening, the director of the camp would make a few opening remarks. And then and he would kind of set the ground rules for the week, and then he would pray. He would pray for the week of the, of the camp. And the first time I participated in the camp, I, I listened to his prayer and, and heard the things that he said. Um, he prayed things like, Father, come and be with us this week. Um, Father, come and work in our lives. Come and help us see you and, and help us understand the gospel. Come and be with us. And while he was praying, it, it occurred to me that what he was praying was a prayer of invocation. Right? A prayer that invites the presence of God. And that's what an invocation is. It's a prayer that invites the presence of God. It's always been rather puzzling to me that they have invocations at football games. I mean, do they really want God to show up? <laughs> that's what a prayer of invocation is. Uh, now, the, the podium was positioned in front of a bunch of sliding glass doors in this room where this bunch of high school and college students met. So after, after the director made these remarks and, and offered this prayer, and while I'm thinking about what it is that he said, he invites me to come up and, and to begin the week with my first message. So I said, the first thing I said was, you may not realize this, but something very significant just happened. Bob prayed and asked God to come and be in our midst. And then I said, now you may not take that prayer seriously, but God does. And when God is invited to come, he comes. And when he shows up, you never know what might happen. And at the moment that I said that, there was a crash of thunder. An explosion of light filled this wall of glass behind me. And every kid in the room <laughs> dove for cover. God takes a prayer like that seriously. I mean, it was just so wonderfully scripted. I mean, I worked for weeks setting that up, right? I mean, it was a phenomenal experience. Now, I know for sure, I'm pretty sure, that not one student remembers anything I said that week. But if you ask any one of those kids if they were present in 1986 at Camp Sunshine, and you ask them about the phrase, booga, 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 they will remember that first night, that week of camp, with that clap of thunder, that explosion of light, and everybody diving for cover. When God shows up, you never know 
what might happen. We're talking about worship. And the first thing and sort of the governing thing that I want for you to have in mind as we do this, I want you to look around you. I want you to look at the person next to you. Just gaze at the person in front of you. Look out the window. Look wherever you want to look. But just understand this. There is more going on here than meets the eye. There is way more going on here than meets the eye. You can think of this passage, and particularly this 12th verse, as a kind of a template for worship, or a picture, a snapshot, if you will, of worship. I will tell your name to my brothers in the midst of the great assembly. I will sing your praise. That's what I'd suggest to you that verse is. It's a kind of a template, a snapshot, a picture of what worship is. So let's, let's ask some questions of the passage. Let's ask these three questions. What, what's going on in this passage? What's going on in worship? Well, here's the first thing, kind of the big, broad thing in general terms, in big picture terms. Worship is the intersection of the seen and the unseen. Worship is the intersection of the seen and the unseen, the visible and the invisible. That's the place to begin. That's the thing to try to begin to get our minds around. There is more going on here than meets the eye. I will tell of your name to my brothers. I will sing your praise in the midst of the great congregation. Who's the eye of verse 12? The eye, as we'll see in a minute, the eye of verse 12 is Jesus himself. The psalm that's being referred to in this passage is Psalm 22. If you go back to Psalm 22, maybe you know Psalm 22, you'll know that Psalm 22 is a remarkable description of a crucifixion hundreds of years before a crucifixion. And verses 16, 17, and 18 is a passage in which the psalmist uses the language of pierced hands and pierced feet, uses the language of of garments being torn and dice being rolled for garments. These incredibly precise details that are fulfilled in the crucifixion of Jesus. But this verse, taken from Psalm 22, is later in the psalm. It comes near the end of the psalm. It comes after verses 19 through 21, which talk about the deliverance that has come to the psalmist. There's all of this description of incredible agony and pain and suffering, but in verses 19 through 21, now there is deliverance, and verse 22 is on the other side of that deliverance. Verse 22 is resurrection. This passage is post-resurrection. And what the author of this letter is saying to us is there's more here than meets the eye. Jesus, the one who fulfills Psalm 22, who suffered that piercing, who suffered, now is on the other side of entombment and is on the side of resurrection. And Jesus is the one who stands in the midst of the great assembly. There's an intersection here of time 
and eternity, the seen and the unseen. And the whole of the New Testament is shot through with this kind of thinking. Just back up just a couple of verses to the end of chapter 1 of Hebrews. It seems that these folks, these folks who received this letter, probably largely a Jewish readership, it seems that they were being tempted because of persecution and opposition to turn away from the gospel and to return to things that they had embraced before coming to Christ. And one of the things that they were enamored of, fascinated by, was angels. And the first chapter pays attention to angels. But what the first chapter intends to tell us, the writer is telling us, is that as spectacular and interesting and fascinating as angels might be, Jesus is superior to angels. Jesus is superior to angels. And then he says this in verses 13 and 14, To which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Ministering spirits sent out to serve those who are to inherit salvation? What in the world does that mean? I have no idea other than simply to accept what the text says and to understand that God has commissioned angelic beings, beings I cannot see, but about whom the Bible says a great deal, not as much as I'd like, but about whom the Bible says a great deal, these angelic beings are sent out by God as ministering spirits to serve you who are destined to inherit salvation. I had an email from a friend not long ago. And he wrote to tell me about a dream. He said, I had a dream in which Ephesians 5.8 came into my mind. Ephesians 5.8. Which reads, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. At one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. And he said, I've never had a dream of a spiritual kind in my entire life until this. And the words made my heart leap for joy. As he wrote about this, it was pretty clear that his heart was full. Did angels have anything to do with that? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe. Maybe not. Maybe in the mystery of the sovereign working of the Spirit, the Spirit simply stirred up something that he never remembers reading or contemplating, but in his dream, it was stirred up from deep within his consciousness, subconsciousness. To be a deep encouragement. Were angels involved in that? I don't know. We know that angels were involved in the cutting of the covenant through Moses with Israel. Scriptures tell us that. I don't know. What I know is, look around you. 
There's more going on here than meets the eye. Matthew 18, verse 10, Jesus says, See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What does that mean? I don't know. What I do know is there is more going on here than meets the eye. Here's one of my favorites. Hebrews 12. Some of you know that this is one of my favorites. Hebrews 12, verses 18 and following. See, again, the context for this is folks who have embraced Christ. They've come to the gospel. They seem through because of persecution and opposition. They seem to be being seduced away from Christ. And this letter is filled with admonitions that they, that they not turn away and that they not turn back to things they had formerly been enamored of, whether angels or the Aaronic priesthood or the law and sacrifices. Here, nearing the end of the letter, The writer writes this and he says, You have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. What's he referring to? He's referring to Sinai, the descent of God where the glory of God descended upon the mountain and people had to stay off the mountain. Look at verse 22. But, you know what the biggest word in the Bible is, right? The little three-letter word, B-U-T. But, there was this. But now there is this. But you, and notice it's not future tense. It's present tense. You have come to Mount Zion. And you can come to Mount Zion. You don't have to stay off of it. You've come to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. You've come to God, the judge of all. You've come to the spirits of righteous men and women and children made Perfect, you have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. The first thing that happens in this service of worship, we participate in every week. It is a call to worship. It is a summons. Who issues the summons? God. God issues the summons. And where is he summoning us to go? He is summoning us to go up into his presence, into the heavenly Jerusalem, onto Mount Zion, surrounded by the souls, the spirits of righteous men and women made perfect, who are gathered in the midst of an innumerable company of glorious angelic beings. And the Zion we are summoned up into comes down to meet with us. There's an intersection here of the seen and the unseen. What do you expect when you come to worship? 
when you wake up on Sunday morning? What are you looking forward to? What are you thinking about? This is the intersection of time and eternity. This is the God of glory entering into our midst. It is us going up into his presence, and it is the risen Christ standing in our midst as the reigning, ruling king of glory. That's what's going on. Who's here? I've already told you who's here. Who is here? Jesus is here. We are here. And the saints are here. You know that little phrase in the Apostles' Creed? I believe in the communion of saints. The communion of saints. The mutual participation of the saints. Not just visible saints. Not just saints not seen by us, but in other parts of the world. Not just the saints currently living. The communion of the saints. This is the proof text for that phrase in the Apostles' Creed. Who is here? Jesus is here. We are here. And somehow, in the mystery of Jesus' presence in our midst... We commune not only with him, but with one another and with our brothers and sisters across the world and across the ages. What is Jesus doing? What is Jesus doing? Look at this. I love this. Boy, this is a, you know, this is a kind of a left cross to the cult, the the cult contagion of our culture right this is a this is a left cross this is a right hook to the cult contagion of our culture the personality cult contagion of our culture who's preaching this morning is mike in town or out of town is that a good thing or a bad thing Oh, I I heard this person on the television said, oh, I'm going to go to this person's church. I want to go hear this person preach. What is Jesus doing in the midst of the assembly? He is speaking. He is speaking to his brothers and sisters. That's what the text says. I will tell of your name to my brothers. And that's That's a term that is inclusive of gender. I am speaking, he is speaking to his brothers and sisters. And what is he speaking about? He is speaking about the name of his father. What is he doing in the midst of the assembly? He is telling his brothers and sisters, having lifted this text out of Psalm 22, Jesus stands in the midst of the assembled gathering and tells of the name of the father who delivered him, who brought him through death, and through resurrection to eternal life and to all of the blessings of glory, it is Jesus standing in the midst of the assembly heralding the glad tidings of redemption in himself. Who's preaching when people gather for worship? When real preaching is going on, it is Jesus. It is Jesus. Martin Lloyd-Jones taught me so much about this. You can have a good sermon and no preaching. You can have a bad sermon and you can have preaching. 
And the difference is when Jesus, by the power of His Spirit, is pleased to show up in the midst of the assembly and herald the glorious and glad tidings of His Father's redemption. That's what Psalm 22 is about. Convinced that's why the author of Hebrews includes that passage in this letter to take us back there so that we too, looking as we do at Psalm 22 through the lens of the cross so that we might see Jesus on the other side of cross and death and entombment now raised and now standing in the midst of the people heralding the glad tidings of his father's salvation. I've got to take you to another of my favorite passages because you think I'm crazy at this point, don't you? Ephesians 2, verses 13 and following. But now in Christ Jesus, listen to this, now in Christ Jesus, You who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one, Jew, Gentile, the line of division obliterated, as are all other lines of distinction. Who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two and so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to you who were near. He came and preached. He came and preached. Is there a human element in this? Yes, there absolutely is. Paul was the human element. But Paul had some grasp of the fact that when the gospel is heralded, it is much more than a human endeavor. There is somebody else involved in it, and that somebody is the risen Christ who comes to preach peace, to invite people to come and know peace. You've got to think about Psalm 16 in this connection. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol. You will not let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Who is at the right hand of the Father? Who possesses pleasures that are forevermore? Jesus, the risen King, who comes into the midst of the assembly to speak to his brothers and sisters and anybody else who has ears to hear. Maybe there's somebody here this morning. You're on the outside. What is this nonsense? What is this craziness? Jesus stands before you as the possessor of infinite joy and hope. And he is the one who says, that he knows the path of life which leads into the presence of the Father where that joy may be known. Jesus stands in the midst of the great assembly and heralds the glad tidings of the Father's 
redemption. But look at this. He isn't just preaching. He's also singing. Right? I mean, isn't it fun to play these silly little games, you know, where you close your eyes and somebody mentions a word and you do the word association thing and you hear the word Jesus. What's the first thing that comes to mind? Is it singing? Is it singing? That's what Jesus does. I will sing your praises in the midst of the great assembly. Jesus, preaching the hope of redemption to his people. Jesus, then, in the midst of the great assembly, leading his people in songs of praise to his Father and their Father. You know what worship is week by week? It's a family reunion. It's a family reunion where the father invites his beloved children as Glenn prayed. Those whom he has loved with an everlasting love. And if it's an everlasting love, it's a love that will never die. Where the father invites his sons and daughters to come into his presence, to gather before him. And here comes the elder brother. The elder brother. The one who was willing to leave home. Parable of the prodigal son. The one who was willing to leave home to go and seek and save that which was lost and gather them to himself and bring them into the Father's presence that he might lead them singing praise to his Father and their Father. Jesus singing in the midst of the assembly. I will tell of your name to my brothers. And notice this one. Why do I wish I had an hour? You know what Jesus, or the writer says about Jesus in his relationship to his brothers and sisters? He's not ashamed of them. He's not ashamed to call them his brothers and his sisters. You know what, you know what shame does? It drives people away from you, doesn't it? You know what shameful things do when they're found out? They drive people away from you, don't they? I've said this to you before. I'll say it again. You would not want to walk around in the chambers of my heart. You'd not want to go down into the basement, down into the cellar. If you did... I guarantee you, you would be ashamed to call me your brother. And you know what? If I walked around in the chambers of your heart, down in the cellar, in the deepest recesses of your soul, I'd find stuff there that would make me ashamed of you. Even though it's no worse than my stuff, and arguably, Not as bad. Jesus not only doesn't mind walking around in the cellars of my heart, he's taken up residence in my soul. And he is not ashamed to call me his brother. 
What's going on here? The intersection of the seen and the unseen. Folks, there is way more going on here than meets the eye. Who's here? Jesus is here. Jesus is here in the midst of his people, speaking words of hope to his people. That's what you've got to pray for week by week. You've got to pray that Jesus will come by the power of his Spirit. It's in your own best interest for you to do that. Don't pray for me. Pray for Jesus to come. Then pray for me. Jesus in the midst of the assembly. Speaking to his brothers and sisters of the mighty works of his redeeming father. Jesus leading his people in singing praise to his father and their father. Jesus who is not ashamed to be among us and call us his brothers and sisters. What? A beautiful picture. And how did we get here? Here's the last question. How did we get here? Jesus came to get us. Jesus came to get us. That's back up in the first verse that we read. It was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Jesus came to get us, sons and daughters. See, isn't, isn't that, I mean, we say this so often, but isn't that really the thing that distinguishes the gospel of Jesus from everything else, every other system of thought? Every other system of thought, I've either got to think clearly enough or work hard enough or do something well enough to warrant getting to whatever the goal is. But it's in this beautiful Here's how we got here. Jesus came to get us and to lead us as sons and daughters into the glory and presence of the Father. I know Victor Hugo is all the rage right now. And he should be the rage. I've got to find a biography of this guy and read a biography, a good biography of Victor Hugo. I don't know how it is that all this gospel reality got into his work. But Victor Hugo is all the rage right now because Les Mis is all the rage, and it should be all the rage. It is a phenomenal film. Victor Hugo also wrote The Hunchback of Notre Dame. And I will never forget a conversation that I had with some dear friends 35 years ago about the Charles Lawton picture. The Hunchback of Notre Dame. This is one you have to see. And all of the gospel imagery that there is in that film. Cosimodo. Twisted, distorted body. Obscene face. He had no comely appearance that we should look on him and be delighted by him. Cosimodo, the outcast, he was despised and rejected of men. Cosimodo, the hunchback, who finds a safe place in the sanctuary, in the cathedral of Notre Dame, and who falls in love with Esmeralda, the gypsy princess. And Esmeralda is on trial for being a witch. 
And the scaffold has been erected, and it's been erected in the courtyard of the Cathedral of Notre Dame. And you see the flying buttresses behind the scaffolding, and you see the rope, and you see the noose, and you see the judges and the jury, and Esmeralda is about to be hanged. And on the parapets behind the scaffolding is Cosimodo, twisted body, distorted, obscene face with all of his attention riveted upon the one who is about to die. And he swings down from the parapets, down to the scaffolding, and he gathers Esmeralda up into his arms, his beloved bride, and takes her into the cathedral, crying out, Sanctuary! 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 where she will be safe. And then there's a shot from the corner of the cathedral down into the street, and all of the gypsy outcasts are flinging their hats in the air, are singing and shouting for joy because the beloved of Cosimodo has been rescued from death. How do we get here, friends? Despised, rejected of men. One upon whom we dare not even cast a gaze. Having loved us with an everlasting love, has swung down into our world and gathered us up into his arms and carried us off into the presence of the Father who from all eternity fixed his gaze upon this bride to love her and redeem her. How did we get here? God of grace brought us here. What's the appropriate response? Fling our hats in the air, sing, shout, dance, and pour out praise to the one who has rescued us to take us to glory. That's what worship is. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for identifying with us in the midst of our weakness. Thank you that though we are the ones twisted and distorted, horrific faces, we are the ones upon whom you've cast your loving gaze And through incarnation and life and death and resurrection, you have gathered us up into your arms, into the presence of the Father, that we might know the joy that you have known from all eternity. God, I don't know how, I don't know how this will happen, but I beg you that by your Spirit, more and more you'd press these realities deep, 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 deep into my soul, into our souls, for the praise of your glorious name. In your name we pray. Amen.